Hi, this is Chuck Wolf. You're listening to the Emotion Roadmap. Take the wheel and control how you feel on WPKN 89.5 FM, listener-supported radio. And you can also listen to us streaming at WPKN.org. I am replaying a show that I think is really timely for all of you. It has to do with trying to cope with holidays where we can't get together and we're forced to stay inside and socially distance and all the things going on with the pandemic and everything else in the world. And I thought one of my colleagues, Gitu Barwani, who will tell you a little bit about herself in a minute, um, we had a great show together around emotional resilience, the book she wrote about it, and some techniques that I think will be helpful to you during these challenging times. Enjoy. Hi, Chuck. Thank you very much for having me on the show. I absolutely love your show. I think, uh, you know, this intention to actually help people do better with emotions in everyday life, I think it's a, it's a fabulous mission and one I absolutely love. Um, so how I got into doing what I'm now doing with emotional resilience is I've spent the last 17 years focusing on emotional intelligence um, as a concept. And from about 11 years ago, my dad started to be, um, my dad is no longer with us. Um, he died of a stroke a year ago. Uh, but in the time, in his last 10 years of life, he was constantly saying, you know, there's great wisdom of how to actually manage emotion on a daily basis that you have now been forming. And maybe you need to write this book and get this message out there. So that's really how I've come to have written this this new book, Emotional Resilience. Well, you have a definition um, that I found that I thought was really interesting. Um, you talk about emotional resilience as the ability to continually choose the feelings, thoughts, and actions that help you achieve results and perform at your best at personal, team, and organizational levels. And I just want to make the comments, particularly for people who are regular listeners of the show, that we're always talking about taking the wheel and controlling how you feel. The tagline is all about this idea that you can actually choose feelings, choose thoughts, choose actions, and you've described that as resilience. So I think it's very consistent with what we're doing on the show. I think a lot of people feel like they have to play the hand they're dealt as a metaphor, I guess. Um, whatever you are feeling, you're stuck with those feelings, and you just have to learn how to deal with them and um, bite your lip and just move on and deal with whatever it is that's <laughs> happened. And I think what you've said is that, no, you've got choices. And if you could talk a little bit about that definition and how you arrived at that to describe resilience, emotional resilience. Yeah, I think, you know, Chuck, something that's really sort of um, – Something that's been really key is that in the early days of focusing on emotion, I used to think that there was one tool or one measure that would give you the entire um, solution to how to deal with emotion. And I realized about five years ago that this isn't the case, really, that no matter how much self-awareness we have, um, it's really what we do in the moment. So in that definition that you just shared, the, the ability to continually choose is how I think about it, that it's a moment-by-moment -moment thing. It's not just something that we know how to do yesterday. So, you know, yesterday I was really unhappy with a particular 
in a particular customer service interaction. But, you know, even though I'm self-aware, I still now need to know what to do in that particular moment, given that set of context and that, that particular set of circumstances. So that's why I think about it as continual, because I think where a lot of us get stuck is where, um, you know, we build the self-awareness, we know what we naturally are, but then what do we actually do in the moment? So that's really what, you know, how I think about emotional resilience, that, yes, it's about emotion, but it's a combination of thinking what is the emotion, but also what's the thought that's going to help me in this situation, but also what can I actually do that's going to make a difference and I think up until you know the last three years I wasn't really thinking about it that way well I think the idea of evolving and and trying to blend you know heart and head thinking and feeling this whole concept that we've both been working on for a long time um, I know for myself that over time sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll know what the right answer might be after the fact but the, the key thing for me is sometimes, is there something that I can recognize when I'm about to do something that may be wrong, inappropriate, incorrect at some level emotionally and catch myself ahead of time so that I learn to be better the next time? That's part of it too, I think. Yeah, I think also, you know, what you said earlier about um, however we deal with things is what we're stuck with in some ways. I think, I think having that really clear understanding of what are the underlying aspects of how we handle emotion that we need to take care of. So, for example, um, I used to think that, you know, if we learn how to manage emotion, and I know that's, that's part of the... Um, you know, the emotion roadmap, how do we actually manage emotion? Well, I've learned that actually if we really look carefully at our histories and understand what our natural um, leaning is in the way of emotion management. So, you know, if we had a lot of trauma or a lot of addiction, if we were around a lot of addiction early in our lives, that will make it even more challenging to handle um, emotions of various types. So I think this whole notion of how we look at our self-worth and particularly how we look at self-care is really important. Well, that kind of leads a little bit into your um, framework for how you talk about personal and team resilience. You want to talk a little bit about how the book kind of gives you kind of a, a template or a process or a way of thinking about how, um, how resilience, emotional resilience comes about. Sure, absolutely. So the first thing I want to say about the framework is that when I started to look back at 20 years of coaching um, leaders, I noticed that the things that were in those histories of conversations were all very similar themes. So the emotion language actually would often translate into then what would you do around life goals, what would you do around specific interactions at work. So what I tried to do with my framework is to actually acknowledge the full range of topics that matter for emotion development. So at the beginning, I think about essentials, six essentials that affect our default level of emotional intelligence. And I, I think about those as the combination of self-worth, self-control, mood, which is all about how we handle ourselves fundamentally on the inside, together with empathy, caring, and understanding, which is all about how we 
interact with others. So those six topics really give us the essentials. And if you imagine it as a sort of funnel, um, these are the ingredients that go into the top of the funnel. And then how they get worked on is through the use of five very specific emotion-based skills. And the way I conceptualize those as the um, ability to shift emotions, shifting, um, the ability to problem-solve emotions, um, the ability to express emotions, the ability to read emotions in a group, which I call group empathy, and finally, dialogue, which is having dialogue about emotions that are more difficult. In a, in a group situation. So that's what the process is of working with our essentials. And then um, when we look at what then comes out of the funnel is typically an ability to do four things which matter for success in life, including success in work. So those would be our ability to connect with other people one-to-one. -one. Um, secondly, our ability to influence others. Um, thirdly, our energy and how we manage our energy on a daily basis. And fourthly, our ability to thrive. In other words, how we set our life goals and take action on them. So that's how I conceptualized it. So as we, um, as we spend the, the 45, 50 minutes together that we're going to talk this morning, I, I just want to tell everyone that's listening that the ability um, to go through and understand each of those pieces will take a longer time than the time we have for the show. But I've, put, I've picked out some key topics I thought that people will listen to and not only find interesting but also find some very practical tips because the show is all about trying to give people ideas about things that they can actually take away and do something different that makes life better. And so one of the things that really struck me right away in that framework you talked about is this idea of self-worth. This, this whole concept of how do we feel about ourselves is so critical to so many things in life. And you talk about ways that, uh, first of all, you talk a little about really where it comes from, and that's useful to understand a little bit about its impact and its origins, but also how might people increase the feelings they have about their own self-worth. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Um, Chuck, I really love the quote um, from a French philosopher, Jean de la Bruyère, which is, a person's worth in this world is estimated according to the value they put on themselves. And I find, you know, I started with self-worth because, as you said, it's absolutely at the crux of the beginning, the, the starting point of how we handle emotions. So um, our self-worth really is a combination of our self-respect um, but also our personal belief that we are valuable in, in whatever we're doing. And um, this is set from a very young age. And as I said earlier, if we, if we grew up around a lot of chaos in our families of origin, this can become a really um, difficult um, concept. And in business, I meet many, many high achievers who um, might have come from stable backgrounds on the face of it, but when you go into their stories, there's often a lot of uh, trauma and chaos in those early stories. Um, so one of the things that is the first thing to notice is what is the everyday commentary going on in our, in our minds as we approach things, and particularly when we approach difficult situations 
that we're facing is is the everyday commentary um, I can't do this or I don't have a right to do this so I just give you a classic example I was singing in a concert on Sunday um, just a couple of days ago and um, we were part of a big community concert and we are, we are a choir of about 23 people and when we came out of our dress rehearsal, which was the first time we met the other 90 singers on the day, there were a number of people in our choir who didn't feel happy about the, um, the dress rehearsal and about the quality of the singing that they heard. And when I asked the question, well, you know, who, who could you talk to about this? A number of people said, well, you know, it's not my right to say this. And so what I've learned over time is that some people really don't actually feel that they have a right to even express something. So when we come later to talking about, you know, expressing emotion in this framework that I've created, if you don't actually feel that you have a right to do that, that's going to affect how that comes across. So um, back to your question about, you know, how can we actually work on this? I think, you know, this is essential to work on because it really impacts how we... Um, how we interact with other people and what we actually do. So one of, the, one of my favorite exercises on uh, self-worth is to do an exercise which is actually, um, I've tried to make it really simple, but it's a very, very profound um, reflection. So it's thinking about seven basic needs that we have, seven basic rights in life, and actually thinking through um, what our own history is on that right and therefore how much of a challenge self-worth is. And those rights are the right to be, um, the right to have needs in the first place, to write, the right to be separate from other people, the right to speak our truth, the right to have auto autonomy um, with support, the right to love and to have passion about things, and the right to our own spiritual path. And I think that those are seven, seven needs that we have in life. And if we are depleted on any one of those needs, we're going to need to really, really work on this area. So one of the, one of the strategies that I saw that you have in the book is about observing someone else that you might think of that might have high self-worth. Now, you don't know their stories, but there's something that's keying you into the fact that these people seem comfortable expressing themselves, seem to have ongoing positive self-talk, seem to believe in their abilities to handle whatever comes. What do you think people see? And, and, and when you say observe somebody, how do you do that and not appear like a stalker or something? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, you know, the great thing, um, the great thing with, I mean, there's the, the three key methods um, accessible to everybody. So one is I would observe people in your own um, immediate circle of friends and family that you identify as having higher self-worth. So when I think about that question, I think about um, a, a, a friend of mine um, who I've known for about three years and I notice 
the pace at which she communicates with other people. And I notice how she looks at people directly in the eye. She never sort of moves away from that direct eye contact. And I also notice that um, the way that she uses gestures and also I notice how she stands. And even when she is sitting and communicating with other people, I notice how upright she is. So that's what I mean by that first method, observing people very close to you in your immediate circle. I think a second really powerful method is to actually observe people in, on TV, um, both in interviews but also in movies. And, of course, in movies we know that people are, you know, acting and stage, but actually when you observe different characters in different films. So um, I recently, for example, uh, was watching that wonderful movie called uh, Me Before You, which is a story of this uh, carer that goes to look after this um, this man who's been in a terrible accident, and uh, it's all about the relationship that they forge. And you know, early in the movie, she is very um, you know she, she's finding it hard to like get through to him. But if you just notice like how confidently she expresses her um, her various attempts to try and sort of win him over. And, you know, she stays completely calm, never, never gives in to the pressure of the situation. So I think observing people in films can be really powerful. And I think a third method is actually, I think, on TED Talks, observing people who actually convey their key topic and actually seeing, again, you know, how they stand, how they convey their point of view. I think those are three really great methods. I'd like to point out, too, that in your book you do refer people to your own website, and then within that website you have a lot of resources. So if people say, well, TED Talks, and they don't know what a TED Talk is, for instance, um, you know, this idea that, um, that there are expert speakers who, and if you've never seen a TED Talk, it's really something worth uh, spending some time just Googling TED Talks, and you'll, you'll see a whole bunch of things come up. And if a topic interests you, I think... Um, they don't make it to a TED Talk unless they're really engaging and they're really interesting. And yet uh, what I want to point out is that in your book you, you point to lots of web-related resources beyond the book itself. Yeah, so um, what I decided to do, when in my first um, version of the book there was five times the content. So what I decided to do was for people that wanted to go deeper into any specific topic, I would have additional materials. So um, in the book, in the audio book or in the physical book, there's a specific URL given that gives access to um, a number of resources. And I picked out, for example, specific talks that I thought were great illustrations of a couple of the topics there. And um, I was also completely new to TED Talks when someone first mentioned them to me. And I found them to be a really great resource, particularly for studying human nature and seeing how different people convey their messages. So I think that's a really great resource to everybody. Well, I, there's, there's another uh, example of something that I think that other people have heard the words before, but you do a nice job explaining it. And maybe if you could talk a little bit about this uh, um, on this interview as well, is this idea of giving yourself self-affirmations. Some people really struggle with the idea of just, you know, scripting self-talk for themselves that's very positive and they feel uncomfortable and, and, and a bit silly even in saying certain things. But and yet they, it seems to have a power that resonates pretty um, 
uh, it can be amazing actually for some people in terms of how it begins to help them to turn around. Do you want to talk a little bit about the exercise of self-affirmations? Maybe give a couple of examples and, and why. It's yeah, sure. So well. Sure, sure. So um, affirmations. The way I think about affirmations is really how can we put into our everyday. Um, sort of mindset, I guess you could call it, how can we put into our everyday mindset the thoughts and beliefs that are actually going to help us to manage our emotions well and to get the best um, outcome from a situation. And so affirmations, the way I see it is that this is how we prepare to do that. So we literally take a sheet of paper and we note down, um, you know, statements that start with the word I that are all true statements about what we're good at, what our skills are, what experiences we've had that gave us good learnings. And, um, you know, I, I think about it as, you know, it, there are either statements which are something like, you know, I can listen well, I am able to um, form a healthy relationship, I'm good at um, I'm good at making the right decision under pressure. I'm proud of my achievements. So um, we write down all of those statements, but the key thing about it is that we pick out the three statements that are going to help us in a specific interaction. So, for example, if I'm doing an interview today with Chuck Wolf on his um, fabulous program, having affirmations top of my mind like, you know, I care deeply about people being emotionally resilient in life. You know, that is an, that is an example of an affirmation that I set at the beginning of today. Um, but also, I'm able to engage other people in my topic. Um, that's an important one. And thirdly, um, I really appreciate Chuck Wolf because of all that he's given me and, you know, uh, all of the specifics around that. So I can take one of the things and make a self-affirmation that you two thinks I have a fabulous show then. <laughs> uh, well, no, you see, you have to word it as an I statement. I have a fabulous show. <laughs> <laughs> and others, because others think so as well. <laughs> and others think so as well. But the key thing with affirmations is that they have to be I statements because it's it's all about... What are the thoughts that we can choose that enable us to have the level of self-worth that's going to enable us to communicate well? Uh, because, you know, we may naturally, you know, as people, I mean, I found as a coach, many, many people don't have high self-worth as a natural given from a young age. And so that's why these affirmations all have the word I. Thanks, Chuck, for listening to my clarification on that. No, that's actually I'm very glad that I, I, I said what I said jokingly, but it, I mean it's really important that, that the I the I part of it is in there. It's one of the things that in in the emotion roadmap when I have callers the 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 show normally for those who are listening to this and just think it's interviews normally I have callers calling in and they're they're challenged they're feeling often helpless about a particular situation in their life and it's complicated by feelings of strong emotion. And, you know, just as an example, let's say somebody's feeling incredibly anxious and they want to feel confident. And one of the things that I ask them to think about is, has there been a time in your life where you've ever been anxious before, feeling similarly? I mean, it may not be at all related, except that the feelings were the same. You felt terribly anxious, but that you were able to turn it into confidence. 
And when, as soon as I ask them to stop thinking about that, it's kind of like they start talking to themselves about past successes that they've had. And if they can connect to one, they begin to realize that, hey, wait, I've been in a similar place before, and I managed to come out on the other end in a very successful way. And so maybe there's something that I did there that may have some semblance of um, relationship to what I'm trying to do here. Even though the circumstances are quite different, the feelings are the same in terms of what I felt and what I wanted to feel. And is there something I can learn from the fact that I've been successful before turning anxiousness into confidence? And I think it, it, it's sort of related to the idea of affirmations. And as soon as that starts to happen, they start to build their own plan for how to deal with whatever it is they might have called about. And then when it's their own plan, it, it has a lot more chance of being successful than if I simply just told them what I think would work. Chuck, I really love that suggestion, and I think, you know, what, what's behind affirmations is actually taking, doing that work on affirmations before the next situation that occurs so that you've actually got your own sort of data bank of affirmations that relate with your own experiences, your own stories. And I found with this that I remember, I remember very distinctly a client I was working with last year. The first time she wrote something down, she had six statements. And, you know, I'd, I'd given her the challenge of writing 20. She started with six. And anyway, after a few different, you know, uh, attempts, she ended up with 73 affirmations. And actually, wow. that's the list that uh, is shared as one of the... She gave me permission to share it as the, a list of examples. And I find that that list is really helpful to people because, um, you know, and I'm more than happy to send that to you if you want to sort of email it out to your readers, uh, to your listeners, rather, because it's, it's just really great to work with a list that's already prepared because it's a lot that's simpler. Great. If you want to do that, that would be wonderful. And if people want to email me about that, they can email me. The email is cj, uh, for my initials, Charles James, cj, and my last name, Wolf, cjwolfe, at cjwolfe.com. And I'm happy to send it to anybody who, who requests it. Um, I want to move on, Gitu, because I think we've done a really nice job, hopefully, for all of you listeners who are um, thinking about how to raise your self-worth. And, you know, sometimes you might think you're fine, but you might want to do this for um, somebody that's a colleague, a friend, maybe a parent even, and certainly for your children, that some of these ideas may not be necessary for you at this point. Um, but one of the things that you might want to consider is this idea of sharing some of these thoughts with people that you know that may have some needs in these areas. Um, I do want to move to self-control because that's another key that you talk about, about emotional resilience begins with self-worth, but self-control is such an important piece on so many dimensions relative to being smart about how you deal with life, particularly the emotional side of life. But really... Um, it has, it has an impact on resilience in the way that you write about it, too. So you want to talk a little bit about your thoughts about, um, you know, self-control, what it is, and how you, again, might build it. Yeah, I think, you know, self-control is probably is my favorite topic in this entire framework. And, um, you know, self-control is all about knowing our feelings um, in response to everyday work events. So self-control is about knowing that our feelings are under control in response to everyday events. And that's a whole combination of things that we can do in the background. Um, so I think about it as being sort of still and controlled on the inside 
and doing everything we can to be still and controlled so that when we do express something on the outside, it's what we actually mean to say and it's actually what's relevant to the situation. So we're not just acting out of our histories and our trauma of the past. And I think, you know, early on in emotional intelligence work, I used to, you know, I've done about 35 different assessments. I've taken 35 different assessments of emotional intelligence. And one of the consistent things is I would always come out as having low self-control. But for years, you know, whilst it bothered me, I used to think, oh, well, you know, at least all these assessments are consistent. And I just need to learn, like, how to count to 10 and just be a bit more measured and thoughtful. But actually, what I realized over time is that there's a, there's a little bit more to it than um, I hadn't really... Uh, thought about. So firstly, you know, how we deal with distractions, you know, a a person with lower self-control is likely to find it really challenging the more we've been using technology-related tools. So, um, you know, this ability to kind of like you know, even like now when you're talking to someone, you know, you'll get a text message coming through or something else will bleep and, you know, someone else trying to reach you or, um, you know, and I counted the other day that the average person might have four or five different methods of people contacting them at any one time. And the person with low self-control really, you know, this can be really challenging. So I think self-control is also important for how do we actually manage ourselves so that we can stay focused. And the other element of it is that if we're not actually working on this um, at the core, it can become very difficult to actually not only get anything done, but to actually be true to our own values and how we want to live in reacting to things. So that, that's just a bit more about, you know, why, why I think this is like a really important activity uh, to focus on. And the, the piece of it that I really um, love is, you know, firstly, dealing with distractions, I think, is a key thing, you know, and actually working out a method for that because... Once you've actually worked out, you know, for example, the times in the day when you're not going to be contacted by anybody for any type of situation, um, you know, that, that gives you the first point on how to stay focused on what you need to do. And then the other aspect of this that I, I think is really important is actually to be conscious of um, what actually leads to um, becoming angry for no reason or for, for little reason under pressure. And I find that, you know, um, these, this acronym HALT, um, if you're hungry, angry, lonely or tired, it's going to be a lot harder to actually manage yourself under pressure. So um, I mentioned the concept earlier of self-care, you know, really thinking about how are you keeping yourself hydrated, how are you making sure you get enough sleep, how much water do you drink, um, how are you you know, planning three meals a day so that you actually get the nourishment that you need. These things sound very simple and basic, but actually they all matter for your degree of self-control. Well, you know, it's interesting. Uh, a couple of things that I've learned in it, uh, sometimes when I talk about self-control on, on, the, on the show um, and I'm talking about the emotion roadmap, I'm thinking about my, my own experiences. I think 
uh, one of the things that I enjoyed about you was your your self control issues because I had I had similar ones, <laughs> and uh, and you know part of that is we're we're all on a journey and we're all working to 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 do as well as we can about you know our own emotional states and how we manage our relationships with others. But one of the things that struck me was that every once in a while there were certain things that would trigger certain bad experiences for me. Um, you know, it would take me down certain roads I'd been on before. And once I began to realize that the path I was on was, was a familiar one that almost never ended well, I was able to think of the idea of a roadway as, hey, this is not a, this is not a road I want to stay on. And as I, if I catch it soon enough, I'm able to exercise more self-control than in the past when I just react. And so part of this is like Pavlov's bell, you know? I mean, it's like food's coming, and I, and I, you know, and I, or so, some trigger that's familiar that I know has a consequence attached to it. If I can somehow change the path I'm on when I realize that's happening, at least for me, that's one of the techniques I advocate for people trying to do better with self-control. Yeah, and you know, one of the things, um, I really love what you've just said, Chuck, about that. And um, for me, um, I think what's been a big learning is to distinguish a need from an urge. So I think, you know, because I recognized that lower self-control was a pattern that was set from a young age, and it was partly a pattern based on needing to stay very sort of agile and changing you know, being able to change my thought, thoughts and perspective quickly when that was needed under pressure. I found this distinction between need and urge really key because, you know, a need is, you know, so like if something comes in and that needs like your attention, um, you know, the urge might be, it's like, you know, if I give you the example, you sent me an email asking me to send something to you. And I know in the past, I would have had the urge to respond quickly and say, oh, yeah, here it is. Here's what you need. But it won't have been very thought through. So I, I sort of recognize, okay, so it's my urge to act now, but I'm going to stop that. What's needed here is that Chuck has this before we speak. And that's what I need to deliver, and I can do that in my own time at the quality that's going to be right for me. Yeah, that's and that's, that for me is a big distinction that has helped enormously. I'd like to talk just a little bit because we're both, you know, you live in the United Kingdom, I live in the United States. Both countries are experiencing a lot of trauma these days with, um, you know, all kinds of events that are taking place, whether it's Brexit um, terrorism, um, shootings, uh, there, there's just all kinds of things that are happening. And, and I was struck by a quote that you had in the book by Martin Luther King. It said, under hot, hot buttons, it said, the ultimate measure of a man, uh, and I imagine a woman too, is not where he or she stands in moments of comfort and convenience, but where he or she stands at times of challenge and controversy. And while it's easy for anybody who's listening to this to say, yeah, I can do that, I can, t I can be more in control, but you know, you see something and you consider it an injustice or you just think it's wrong and you want to react to it, and, and this is about dealing with others at times when, when you feel like you've had your buttons pressed. How do you get control back? And that was one of the questions I wanted to ask you as well. Well, it was very interesting you mentioned Brexit because, as you mentioned, I live in the UK. And I remember in the week leading up to that referendum, um, I started the week by asking friends how they were going to vote. <laughs> 
And I stopped doing that on about day two when I started to realize everybody was voting opposite to the way I had planned to vote. And um, I think one of the key things uh, with this is um, I think if we can start to notice what is the distinction between our instinctive reactions, in this case, the example I just gave, my instinctive reaction was to talk to people about this. And I was actually invited to various people's, you know, friends' homes to have like a debate about this. But because I realized that actually emotions were running so high on this topic and there was a lot of fear involved, I actually made some very like different choices to what I thought I was doing at the beginning of the week. But I think with these hot buttons, and I think that quote that you mentioned, the Martin Luther King quote, I think it's really about noticing um, the, you know, what is triggering the emotions, but, but, but also um, what is it that you actually want in this situation? And in this particular situation, I think if I had gone into that bull in a china shop, which, you know, is probably how I would describe myself of about, you know, 12 to 15 years ago, I would have gone to all of those debates. I would have probably lost a lot of close friends in that week when I concluded that we weren't voting the same way and uh, there would have been a lot of upset. But I actually think it's about saying, you know, what's actually going to be a healthy choice in this moment because there's so much evidence now that our inability to manage our own anger actually costs us our health. And, you know... I, I went through three years of cancer treatment in my late 30s, you know, when I was 38. And I absolutely know, looking back, that that was all related to emotional challenges. And, you know, whilst, you know, I'm not a doctor and I can't, you know, I can't know for certain the medical aspects of that, I'm convinced that there was an emotional aspect to that. And I just, and I think, you know, asking ourselves what's healthy is a question that we don't often ask. And that, I think, is really linked with this topic of low self-control and the need to shift um, emotions in the moment. Well, I think that's, uh, you know, again, I, I encourage people to get your book and to learn more about this. Um, and, I, I mean, I'm, I'm I noticed the time, and I want to cover a few other topics with you. And one of the things that strikes me is that sometimes when we're on different sides of of, of the aisle or different sides of, of um, an opinion question, and we we find that certain topics are just really, really challenging to, to discuss and to dialogue about. And I know that you talk a little bit about empathy. And in my last show, I was really I was talking about this idea of empathy. And a lot of people think that they can be empathetic to other people. And then I, I toss out a topic. Well, can you be uh, empathetic to somebody who's on the other side? If if you believe that uh, that abortion is a woman's right to choose, and somebody else that you're talking to believes that it's it's the death of an unborn child, um, is there any ability to be empathetic to each other? And I, and I, you know, when it, when you pick something in, in our in our country right now, there's a, I think a huge split between Democrats and Republicans in terms of candidates that they're they're voting for, and people have a tremendously difficult time talking about politics as well. So there are certain things that just seem really really uncomfortable. But I think true empathy is to really put yourself in the other person's shoes and to try and see what they see, even when it's incredibly different. 
than what you might feel or think or, or want to act on yourself. And I think empathy is not as easy as it might sound to be empathetic to mm. somebody else, especially when you disagree on something that's important to you. It's interesting, Chuck, you mentioned about the political situation going on right now. I actually think on both sides of the Atlantic, I think we have, we've, we've reached a crisis of empathy, of lack of empathy, um, in the sense that I think that this gap in being able to hear other people is now really, really serious. And in some ways, I think, you know, as a society, we probably need to go through this to actually feel even more of the pain of, of why this is an issue. So I think the way I think about it is that I don't think we hear people say the words, I hear you, and really mean it in a conversation. So I think that, that would be step one on empathy. Um, but I also think that because everybody speaks from their own context and histories, I think being able to hear somebody from their own context is important and to be able to accept their point of view from their own context, but to be able to express a view based on a better vision, which is a vision for everybody that is beyond your own context. So I think the piece that we really miss is what I've built into my framework on emotional resilience that I call understanding. Because to me, understanding goes way beyond empathy. And understanding is about how do you actually really understand where people are coming from and be able to acknowledge that and actually build that into how you're operating. And I think that's what's really missing. So I know we've been talking about empathy for more, at least more than a decade, but I actually think empathy is just the tip of the iceberg. It's interesting. So if we can uh, generate more understanding with people, can we be more resilient when what we understand is different than what we held as a firm belief before we understood why somebody is different than us? Yeah, I think understanding is really about saying, well, you know, I appreciate that another person's perspective is different to my own and maybe based on what they live on in their everyday life, you know, that is the right choice. So just coming back to Brexit, just as an example, um, you know, I, I remember distinctly um, four weeks ago, a friend saying, you know, what they were experiencing in their local town around, you know, this hot topic of immigration. And the thing is, you know, whilst that isn't my own experience, um, and that particular person made, made the conclusion that they needed to vote, you know, to leave Europe, and has since regretted it, actually. That person has since regretted that vote because of everything else that has unfolded since. I think it's about being able to say, you know, I understand that your life story is different to my own, and that's the right choice for you. But let me, you know, just share with you um, the conclusions I've come to. And I think if we're managing our own anger within that, we can communicate our point of view much more elegantly. And I think it's that combination of understanding with self-control that is really missing. Well, yeah, I want to ask you about expressing core feelings as it relates to what we're talking about, at least in the way I think about it. And this is something we'd said we'd chat about a bit. 
and you have a Dr. Seuss quote, which I really like, that says, be who you are and say what you feel, because the people who mind don't matter, and the people who matter don't mind. <laughs> I like that a lot. <laughs> and, but one of the things that strikes me was that you chose not to say certain things in the conversation with your friends around Brexit because of what it might mean to them, and you could have lost some friendships. So how do you put that together with expressing core feelings when you look at, if, if that's advice that you're giving to someone who's reading your book and you want them to feel comfortable saying what they want to say and feeling what they want to feel, um, but within what context is that okay or not okay? Yeah, I think it's a really, I think, Chuck, you know, the question you've just asked is a real million-dollar question. You know, when do you know when it's okay to express what you really feel and when is it not? And I think this distinction, you know, which, again, is down to, you know, what's the best choice you make in the situation? I'm confident that if you are, you know, if we're well-rested, we're hydrated, <laughs> we've done the sort of, like, background work, we're going to give the authentic response in the moment. So one of the tools I shared in my book, which is something that, that somebody actually um, shared with me and I've tried to sort of like turn it into a tool that can be used every day, is to think about expressing your own um, feelings but with a very clear four-part um, four-part statement, you know, so in this, so, and it's situation, feeling, consequence, request. So in that example that we just um, shared about that individual, um, it, I, I said something to, you know, like, you know, the situation is um, I'm choosing not to have a debate on this topic. Um, I'm feeling concerned about this upcoming referendum, um, but I'm very conscious that I need to take care of myself. So um, the consequence of that is that I'm making some very clear choices about what's healthy for me right now. So my request is that we actually return to this conversation after the vote when we can actually talk about where we're at with it. That's very And that's what I said to her. That's a great answer. So it's like looking at you sort of, a, again, more of a framework around, you know, just looking at the consequence. Because I've made similar choices, but not necessarily with a framework where I've thought about, you know, is this something I really – you talked about the difference between a need and an urge. And is there yeah. a need for me to say something now, or do I have an urge to say it? Because I just think it's something that's important to say. But maybe the consequence of saying it here and the way I'm thinking about it isn't, isn't going to get me the result, and it's going to cause a consequence I'm not comfortable with. So it's not that I'm not being genuine or authentic. It's just that I'm picking my spots and being more thoughtful about how to say what I want to say and get it done in a way that I can be truthful um, but pick my own time and place so that I can have the consequence for myself and others that I think would be most useful. Yeah, I think, Chuck, you know, there's something very key about actually knowing what a core feeling is. And I think, you know, we... We, a lot of people can mix up like thoughts as feelings um, and I think if we're really clear that the underlying feeling, for example, is fear, then there are certain things you would do with fear to take care of yourself. Mm -hmm. So if I was feeling fearful, for example, in that situation, I can't count on the other person to take care of me and to help me feel less anxious and going to a debate wouldn't be a way to take care of 
the anxiety about the vote, the upcoming referendum, for example. And I think it's really just being able to notice, like, what is the core feeling and therefore what to do about it. And what I love about the emotion, emotion roadmap, which is, you know, what you've been sort of like um, advocating for many, many, many years, is that whole ability to actually choose what's right for the situation and actually really learn about what's right. So I think, you know, we're saying very similar things here. Well, that's great. I want to just, uh, I'm going, I've noticed the time and I realize we're, we're getting to the end. And I want to just mention a couple of things about your book that I thought were really interesting. You actually talk about, in terms of relationships with others, this idea of demonstrating caring. And it's really, it, one of the examples you use is, a, is, a, is an email format where somebody who wants to get a, something done quickly and is achievement-oriented and just writes a sentence or two about what they need from the other person and, and sends it out and how that's different than, than putting a line in front of that, which basically says something personal about the other person, about the fact that you know who this other person is, that you care about this other person, in just a very few words. It doesn't take much time, and yet sends a whole different, I, I believe it sends, uh, coming across emails, I think you can feel things too, even though you're not seeing a person, you're just reading something. But when something's a little personal and asks a little bit about, your world and your situation and demonstrates a bit of caring before your request. It just feels completely different to me, and I think it makes people feel cared about versus how an email that's to the point and, and practical and says what you need, and yet it feels like this person only contacts me when they need something from me. Yeah. I think, you know, Chuck, I think with that um I, I love that, uh, you know, such a simple thing. And I find that either, you know, a sentence at the beginning, um, if it's a controversial uh, topic, a sentence at the beginning goes a long way. Um, but I also think a sentence at the end is the other way I think about it, you know, because then that's the last thing you're leaving the person at the end of the email. Um, but, yeah, it's it's such a it's such an important simple demonstration of caring and in our sort of world of short emails and you know one-liners I think that goes a long way. I think so too. I want to give you a chance to talk a little bit about towards the end of the book you're talking more about energy and thriving and how it relates to resilience. You want to say a couple of words about that, Gitu? Oh yeah, energy. Um, I used to wonder why people were exhausted in the workplace um, and um, when you look at that as a problem you know why are people exhausted so in other words you have people that are doing fantastic stuff in the community but actually they're running around trying to meet everybody's needs and actually usually end up pretty exhausted and not taking care of themselves so really the chapter on energy really brings everything together and looks at what specifically you know what are the things that you're doing that really are giving you energy and what's taking energy away and I think that's a really important thing to work through but also the the idea of thriving is um I, I really think, you know, when we think about six areas of our life, you know, I think about um, our emotional health is not just one aspect. It's six different areas of life. It's our social health. It's our physical health, our spiritual health, our career health, our intellectual health, and also our intellectual 
um, health. So in the chapter that I wrote on thriving, we look at these six areas of our emotional health and actually create some uh, milestones around them as well as some practical everyday uh, targets. And I think that, you know, if everybody did that just one thing to think about how balanced we are in those areas. And I can tell you that, you know, 10 years ago, I don't think I, I even knew what the word balance meant, frankly, <laughs> let alone actually <laughs> trying to live a life, um, you know, with that. And I think about it as a living legacy. So in the, in the part of the book that's on thriving, I, you know, I've been to many, many funerals, and frankly, at the end of our life, it's too late. You know, whatever our religious beliefs are, it's too late to have lived that life that we all, you know, want to lead. So I think about legacy not as something we leave to our loved ones when we're gone, but a living legacy. What is it we're doing right now that's actually serving um, our community, our families, you know, that we're really proud of versus, you know, just dragging ourselves into each day. Interesting. One of the things that I sometimes when I'm um, presenting in a keynote speech or in a, some, some kind of group format, I'll talk about this idea of when Gallup polls go across North American companies and they poll people to see if they're engaged, um, disengaged or actively disengaged, they find that um, people are often, for the most part, 80% um, of the workforce is not engaged at a high level. And that mm. seems to be a consistent number that they find year after year. And engagement to me is this idea of it's an emotional issue. And when you, mm. when, when you wonder why people are tired in work and aren't thriving and have lack of, lack of energy, it's often because they feel disengaged and they're fighting with themselves just to stay focused during the workday. And I think that one of the things that you end the book with is how important it is for leaders to think about why it is that they may want to bring emotional resilience into their organization. So I wanted to give you a moment to, to just kind of talk about that. You talked about it from a kind of a world perspective and a life perspective, from a legacy perspective for individuals to think about. What about for leaders, Geetu? Well, Chuck, you know, I think this is really at the core. You know, um, people like you and I have been working on emotional intelligence uh, development for a long, long time, um, close to two decades now. And I think the key sort of like call to action is that um, our society is in a mess. You only have to look at the first headline in the news every day to know that we're in a mess. And I think the mess in business is actually uh, one that leaders of business can actually resolve through actually um, acknowledging that emotion matters for performance in a job and therefore emotion matters for performance of a business. And many people accept that intellectually, but actually it's the practice where there are um, sort of gaps. So I think up until now, a lot of leaders think about this as something just for the leaders and the enlightened ones think about this as a topic that if leaders actually are educated in this, then they can do the right thing. But I actually think now we're in a different phase. I think now it's the leaders to say the gaps that we've overlooked, which are to do with emotion, are gaps that we can fill by the right education, the right development, and 
now is the time that we need to do that. So emotional resilience is an attempt to actually provide a very practical way with a start point, an end point, the specific education and development that people can go through. And I am hopeful from seeing some of, some of the ways people have started to work with this that this does give a way for people to have all the resources that they need, the personal, the psychological, the social resources to actually sustain not only high personal well-being, but high performance of an organization. I want to thank you very much, Gitu, for your time on the phone today. And do you want to talk a little bit about how people can purchase your book? Sure. So my book is available in paperback and also on Audible as a download in audio format, but we also have an Amazon store with all of the different formats of the book. So you can go to eiworld.org store. In that store, you'll find all of those methods. You can also search it on amazon.com and other online booksellers. Thanks very much, Gitu. Thank you very much, Chuck. It's been a pleasure.